0: Support for WFIU News comes from the IU Alumni Association, now offering IU Proud, a member program designed for recent graduates and those facing economic hardship. More information at alumni.iu.edu slash join. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber Internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, Offering complete turnkey services for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com. Welcome to Noon
1: Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, your host, along with co host Lori McRobbie. Today, we're talking about monkeypox and COVID-19 and what Indiana residents should look for coming this fall. We have three guests joining us, all by Zoom. Dr. Thomas Duzinski is a clinical assistant professor and director of epidemiology education at uh, IU, at the Fairbanks School of, at IU in Indianapolis. James Ferguson is, a, is from Muncie, Indiana, and he is a former monkeypox patient. He's joining us by phone. And also Graham McKean, our old friend Graham, who's been here with us talking about um, all these pandemics uh, for quite some time. We were just reminiscing it was January of 2020 when he was first on the show talking about COVID. Graham is a director of public and environmental health and part-time instructor in the O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs at IU. If you have questions or comments for us today... You can send them to news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can also call us at 812-855-0811 or toll-free at 877-285-9348. You can also send us your questions um, to Twitter at Noon Edition. So thank you all for being here with us. And I want to start the program today with uh, Dr. Thomas Duzinski. How How is it that monkeypox has emerged on the scene? It's been around for quite some time. I've read, I, I thought it was 1958, then I read another, something from the World Health Organization that said the first case in a human was 1968. Why has it become such a problem today?
2: Sure, those are great questions, and thanks for the opportunity to speak with you and your audience today. Uh, so yeah, you're right, monkeypox we've known about uh, since 1958, it was first recognized in a colony of monkeys in Central Africa. And then the first human case was around 68, 1970. Um, and actually, we've, this isn't the first time we've seen monkeypox here in the U.S., uh, and specifically even here in Indiana. Back in 2003, we had a small outbreak uh, associated with exotic animal sales, like prairie dogs and giant Gambian rats. Uh, And that was different than what we're seeing today in that you had to have, or most cases had exposure to these animals, right? Handling these animals with monkeypox, they infected themselves that way. Um, In this particular setting or in this particular outbreak uh, or epidemic now, uh, what we're seeing is more human to human transmission. Uh, And I think a lot of it uh, came about, uh, started in, in a rave Uh, and close personal bodily contact. Um, And that's what has now led us to where we are with more than 26,000 cases around the world and more than 7,000 cases here in the US alone. So uh, it's way different than what we've seen before and has more to do, I think, with the type of contact that we're experiencing now among cases uh, and exposing others.
1: James, now you um, have had the disease. Can you talk about your experience a little bit?
3: Yeah. When I first realized there was something amiss with myself, it wasn't, you know, these horrible pictures that were on TV at the time. You know, we were seeing these, you know, giant blisters that were in big clusters and things. And um, I just noticed that I was feeling fatigued and I had a headache and I started getting a rash. and it being Indiana, I just thought, you know, at first, you know, maybe I've been bit by mosquitoes or it's chiggers or something, didn't give it much mind, uh, until one day it got a little bit worse a few days later and I looked in the mirror and thought, hmm, that kind of looks like chicken pox. And as I said that, it there was a aha moment. Um, and that's when I began the daunting task of uh, getting tested, which I wouldn't get a con- confirmation until actually three weeks later when I was uh, much sicker than I was initially.
1: Mm-hmm. We'll talk more about your uh, experience as we go along. I want to bring Graham in, though, quickly here to talk about, you know, monkeypox. Um, the numbers uh, seem – they would have seemed large at one point, but we've got COVID numbers out of there. I believe, 91 million uh, COVID cases, over a million deaths. Um, are we at the beginning of another – potentially another pandemic like with COVID?
4: I, I mean, I think just based on the definition of what we're seeing, you know, you can clearly define this as a pandemic um, with this virus known to only be endemic in certain areas of Central and West Africa. now it's in 88 countries, 81 of which this is uh, novel, or emerging pathogen in these places now. And uh, I don't think it'll have the speed uh, which we saw with COVID. It, it, you know, certainly doesn't seem to have the same transmissibility, our full airborne potential that COVID has, uh, but uh, there are some real eerie similarities to some of the early failures that we saw with COVID-19 that I think we're seeing with monkeypox now, whether that's access to testing, um, having very narrow testing criteria uh, as well. Um, you know, In some jurisdictions, they're saying that you have to be a gay or bisexual man with multiple partners in the last 14 days to get a test, and that to me sounds just like trying to get a test for COVID in March of 2020 when I would have had to been in the hospital on a respirator and within Wuhan in 14 days. And I think I've seen some of the um, monkeypox positivity rates in some of the areas of the country t- you know, being 20 to 50 percent, so clearly we're missing cases. Uh, again, very hard to tell, still very early, uh, but I think this is already a, a massive failure uh, on the public health end. And to quote Yogi Berra, you know, it's deja vu all over again here. Um, you know, the world should have mobilized in early May. Well, we actually probably should have mobilized in 20, 2017. We actually think this outbreak started in Nigeria in 2017 and had been simmering there, which allowed it to get out elsewhere. Um, I think it's also worth noting you know, the endemic areas where this is spreading and has historically spread um, in Africa, they don't have any vaccines. Uh, There is very limited vaccine available here in the US too. So this is why we can't have that vaccine only approach that we seem to kind of adopted with COVID. And while that's also not working either. So there's a lot of reasons why we should not neglect other diseases in the world. And this is uh, clearly another example of that.
5: Yeah, I want to follow up a little more on that, just in terms of our preparedness for dealing with these. I mean, this second, second major, I guess, monkeypox is classified as an epidemic now, or very close to it, uh, in very, very short time. So, you know, clearly these are going to be coming, and we should be in better shape in terms of having tests and regimens and um, uh, all, the, all the things one needs to do for pandemic preparedness. There, there was just a uh, recent um, New York Times opinion essay just about a week ago uh, written by Dr. Scott Gottlieb, who's a former FDA commissioner, uh, who, call, who called out the U.S. government for the, the lack of response, for not getting out in front of this, and calling f- for more support for the CDC, that it's really the only... Uh, Part of our our public health national public health infrastructure that's set up to deal with these things and it really needs to be uh, better funded Uh, Pretty hard sell on Capitol Hill these days, Um, but I wonder if you Graham obviously and and Thomas and James uh, To the extent that you have an opinion here could talk about Just what what we should be putting in place to deal with what might be the next one?
4: Uh, I think you're exactly right. It's becoming, you know, I think the the agency historically has kind of almost been more of an academic agency uh, and they look at a lot of things after the fact and put out recommendations after the fact. And we clearly need the agency to be a little bit more quick footed in terms of its ability to provide actual response during emergencies, put out information. I think we need more, you know, implementation of precautionary principles until we can get the science and the data to drive those decisions. Uh, And clearly the CDC is being swayed by politics and public opinion. Um, You know, just last or maybe this week, actually, um, they released a study showing some of these rare complications in children with COVID, with heart issues and other cardiovascular issues and things like that, that yet at the same time announced that they're going to ease K through 12 COVID guidance in schools. And it sounds like there is even reports that they might ease the ability um, or the recommendation for those to, to quarantine that are unvaccinated if you're exposed to COVID-19. Um, so these things need to change and we really need to invest in public health. We really need to really expand real-time public health data uh, and getting better data from the states. We have a very disjointed public health system, in the United States. We have 95 health jurisdictions in this state alone, uh, for example, so we need to, to kind of uh, clear that and, and get some consistency and some some real data sharing uh, and able to make actual science-based decisions. And the CDC obviously should only be concerned
3: about preventing disease and not that of the you know public opinion. Yeah. Uh, certainly. Well, and I can't really speak much to the logistics or strategy um, behind public health, but ethically, I think we have a major issue because monkeypox, for example. Uh, I think there was only 1 million uh, vaccines available when at the beginning of uh, June or May, uh, and that was internationally. Uh, and as it's been mentioned, there are communities in Nigeria and other parts of Central Africa that this has been going on for years. And uh, diseases don't pay attention to borders. And when we allow those who are the least among us to be neglected and uh, to be allowed to suffer for years uh, without, the prevention of available vaccine and technology and treatment, those diseases will eventually affect the most among us. You know, it doesn't matter. The The borders don't stop illness. And this is a perfect example of the ethics of compassion and why we really should be looking at diseases and communities where people may be more at risk and actually addressing them before it becomes international concern. Yeah,
5: truly. Yeah,
3: I would,
2: I would echo some of that as well. Obviously, leadership is important. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to public health, uh, yes, more resources at CDC, but also we have to remember that uh, states are responsible for doing public health within their jurisdiction. It's not CDC doing public health; it's the states and the state response. So we need more resources at state and local levels as well. Uh, you know Graham's point of uh, interoperability and and sharing data. Uh, Every state does it a little bit differently, so they all have these homegrown systems that don't necessarily talk to one another, so it makes it really challenging to share that data. Around leadership, messaging is really important, right? We look at monkeypox, um, and a lot of the mistakes that we've made around messaging around monkeypox, uh, we made around HIV uh, back in the late 70s and early 80s, right? uh, the initial messaging was, you know, unless you're a homosexual male, you're not at risk. And that simply isn't the case. Monkeypox can infect anyone, uh, and it's not a sexually
3: transmitted infection. And that's a stigma that I've already begun to contend with in the LGBT community, uh, uh, Dr. Gaczynski is um this idea that monkeypox is a gay disease and i've had to correct a lot of people and say no this is a disease that's spread through physical contact contaminated surfaces and water droplets there's a big difference um and the the stigma could even cause people to not be tested because one they don't want to be labeled as having some kind of uh contagion or uh even for say a questioning person that oh my you know i don't want to do something that may make me look gay Right. I mean, it's it just all around not a good strategy to place social stigmas on any illness. Absolutely. And,
4: yeah, I can't agree more. And uh, obviously, that's where the focus should be right now the education, the resources, the treatments, the vaccines, the awareness, the destigmatization of that. Um, and, you know, we're seeing some data that's saying it's overwhelmingly skewed in this direction. But we also know in a very small sample size, the first 33 cases in Indiana that were reported, 20% were in females, and we had multiple pediatric cases. So, back to that point that anybody can get this. Um, It's not just spread through intimate contact, it can spread in other ways. I I think uh, the public needs to be aware of that. I think clinicians also need to be aware of the signs and symptoms too. I think that's some of the backlog we're seeing is providers and clinicians not being aware of monkeypox and the testing that they should be uh, offering and providing to patients. I know, James,
2: Uh, you really brought up an important point, James, in the fact that if uh, stigma prevents you from getting tested uh, and seen by a clinician. Um, it also means that public health can't help minimize the spread of disease through contact tracing, just like we do with COVID, right? So if we can't identify you as a case, and you don't participate in contact tracing, all of which is still you know private information that we don't share with anyone, we protect identities. Uh, but without that, we're allowing disease to continue to be spread.
4: And I, and I would argue uh, that, you know, this boots leather, this kind of uh, boots on the ground boot leather epidemiology is so critical for a, a disease like monkeypox. COVID-19 can spread asymptomatically, it can spread pre-symptomatically, it can spread via airborne very easily. We don't think monkeypox does as that uh, that uh, to that degree. So this is something that should be able to be contained better through really stringent testing, tracing, isolation. Um, and contact tracing, and, and then monitoring those contacts as well. That's kind of one big difference with something like quarantine. Is kind of similar to our Ebola response in 2014. Is you're not, we're thought you're thought not to be infectious until you exhibit symptoms. And so those that are are close contacts do not have to quarantine, but they do need to monitor their symptoms and check their temperature twice a day for 21 days. Um, and you can. You know we again have a vaccine we don't have really enough of it we don't have great Mm -hmm. vaccine effectiveness data especially for this current outbreak but that does give us the potential because of this those close contacts if we can get to them within a matter of days which again takes really good public health systems really good contact tracing and patients being able to provide that information to public health officials we can provide post-exposure prophylaxis to those contacts and maybe prevent infection or potentially at least lessen the infection um, and so that's part of that strategy. When we uh, eradicated smallpox after 10,000 years, um, you know, we were able to do that. We even did ring vaccination where we vaccinated the contacts of contacts to try to get around that. And so that's the kind of public health effort we need, and that's the public health effort we're not seeing globally, we're not seeing nationally, or uh, maybe locally even as well. And so those are some of the big concerns that we have and things that we
1: really need to focus on. I know Lori has another question, but before that, this is such an important program. Uh, And I wanted to reintroduce our guest. That that was Graham McKean you were just listening to, Director of Public and Environmental Health at Indiana University. He's also a part-time instructor in the O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs at IU. Before Graham was speaking, that was Dr. Thomas Duzinski, Clinical Assistant Professor and Director of Epidemiology Education uh, at the Fairbanks School at at IUPUI. And we also have on the show James Ferguson, who we've identified so far as a former monk, monkeypox patient. But I don't think that's too fair to James. James, you've got other things going on in your life. Uh, your last answer uh, referred to the ethics of the situation. So, could you tell us, you know, what else? You know, identify yourself in a different way than monkeypox patient.
3: Oh, I'm a. I'm finishing up my LMHCA while uh, also recovering from monkeypox. So my my goal is to soon be a, a clinical mental health counselor here in the Hoosier State. I have two master's degrees from Christian Theological Seminary that will be conferred when I do finish my requirements here in a few weeks, and that's a master's of divinity and clinical mental health counseling. And I have a, a degree in philosophy from Ball State
1: here well, in India. All right. And our phone numbers, if you want to give us a call, 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or toll free at 877-285-9348. You can also send us questions, news at Media.org. And you can follow us on Twitter, at Noon Edition. Now, Lori.
5: Lori <laughs> <laughs> um, You guys are having a, a very, very good conversation. Uh, didn't really want to even break in. But I, I do want to come back to you, James. First of all, congratulations in advance on, on getting your degrees. And But I am going to go back to your status as someone who's had monkeypox. To, to ask you, you made a comment earlier on that it, uh, I think you said it took three weeks to confirm that you had a case of monkeypox. So this uh, triggers a, just a question um, that I I'm sure you can speak to and, and uh, perhaps Thomas and Graham as well about why it took so long, and does it still take that long? Uh, testing is obviously a critical part of public health response, um, and are we going to see these kinds of delays? I mean, you can get instant tests for COVID now, but uh, but apparently not for monkeypox. So, James, do you know why it took so long?
3: Well, um, I can speak to kind of my personal experience, um, but I'll, uh, the caveat to that is, or the I'll. I'll Preface that by saying that I, this has been a learning curve for a lot of physicians and for the public health uh, infrastructure. So I've, I've had to, as a patient, show a lot of understanding. But um, uh, that said, when I first went to get tested, I had called an infectious disease doctor. Uh, it was on a Saturday or Sunday uh, through a uh, community health network. And it was an on-call doctor, and I just told them, hey, you know, I think I might have monkeypox. Can you give me a call back to get some guidance? And that doctor, um, Dr. Baker, through a community health network, was very insightful and helpful and referred me to uh, the ER and at community to be tested for monkeypox. Living in Muncie, I thought, well, I'll just call my local ER and see if they can do it. And they would not at the time. Now, that's been changed. The health department has assured me that they've, they've put that, Uh, ability in place. Uh, But the first hour I called, I wasn't even able to get the test. Uh, And so I did end up going to Anderson the next day. And that test, I believe they just were, it was the first time any of the providers had done the test. And the results came back inconclusive. And I, and I genuinely believe, you know, my criticism is that they just didn't, um, the lesions at that time one I don't were not nearly as bad as they are now they're now open the size of a dime to a half dollar from my scalp to the tops of my feet and they're still healing um, they weren't like that at the time um, so I'm not sure if that affected the test but I know when I went in uh, I waited five days get the, that test back it comes back in and by that point I clearly have monkeypox I mean I have body aches a fever of 103 the lesions are growing in size and number um, so I go back to the ER, they test me, and when they tested me the second time, uh, the, the written instructions from the health department said to not decap the lesions. And I think that's been a protocol change uh, because uh, the nurse and I even looking at myself thought, you know, we need to get an actual viable sample. And so we disregarded those instructions and we scraped one of my lesions completely. We debride the whole lesion and put the whole thing in the sample. And during that, they take two samples during the same testing period. And the one that was taken by swab came back negative. And the one that we had scraped away from the and debride, that came back positive. And so I really think they've had to even change how they approach the testing. And what's disappointing is that there's only a swab test which limits um, when a person can be tested. And by that point, they're already sick. Um, if there's virality in the lesion, uh, they've already had monkeypox for two to three weeks. Um, so I really think that we need to get into antibody testing which can show up to four days after exposure. And so if we just changed our approach to testing, I think we could get much more accurate numbers.
5: And Thomas, maybe you can speak to this. What What do you know about how the testing regimen is is shifting?
2: Yeah, that's a that's an important point. Thanks, James, I appreciate your uh, insight on that and you're 100% correct. Uh, so monkeypox kind of Caught, unfortunately, many off guard, and the availability of testing uh, just wasn't there. And uh, when we think about our physicians and our nurse practitioners and and these healthcare professionals, this isn't something that's necessarily on their radar, right? So then they weren't up to date necessarily on all the testing protocol and regimen, and even availability of testing, uh, all proved to be a challenge, um, and it it that's understandable. I kind of, I get that. Uh, but you know, we, once we know this virus could potentially be here in Indiana or in the U S that's the time that we need our, our health professionals to get knowledge around those testing kits, you know, have public health talk about where can testing be done? How do you get a kit? Uh, how do you, you know, what's the, uh, what we call cut points in terms of positivity versus not positive uh and any other sort of insight as to how best testing regimen and and to be honest uh it it was like COVID in the sense that where do we even get tested right do we have testing availability anywhere uh and it took a while to catch up uh based on you know what we see today
4: and i would just add uh, you know i know that IDOH, the Indiana Department of Health, can test for orthopox, and they can do that state lab. Uh, And they are doing this for providers in the state Monday through Friday. Um, I'm not sure of the capacity we have within Indiana. uh, Obviously, we need more. There are five commercial labs that have come on at the federal level, but it sounds like they're not seeing the influx of specimens that they thought they would. And so I don't know if this, again, goes back to issues with clinical presentation and a recognition of this and providers to to authorize or require testing or or, um, collect specimens but also there's some collection backups too i think you need advanced practice nurses to do these collections and i think james you have an excellent point that you know we can't test you until you develop these lesions and you're already infectious at this point You like you said you're already ill yourself but you're also infectious to others and i think that's Going to be a limiting step in our ability to control the virus as well and so i know there are some folks already out there looking at you know salivary pcr tests maybe asymptomatic or close contact testing that we can get to and i think that'll be an important point for uh,
1: control going forward. Graham, how does this translate to, uh, you know, a community like Bloomington, where Indiana University students are going to be start? they're starting already to come back in to town? I mean, we, we know this is, I think you all have said, this is not a sexually transmitted disease, but it is a disease that uh, can spread through close contacts and physical contact and people sharing, you know, bedding and various other things should... Uh, the campus. Uh, what, what's the campus doing to prepare for it? And should we be concerned?
4: It's a, it's a good question. I think. <laughs> We don't want to say wait and see, because the wait and see approach doesn't work with these things. Um, so, you know, we are preparing. We have we actually have a public-facing um, monkeypox website with general information. We have some internal guidance we've developed for the public health protocols. We've talked to the state. We've talked to their local health departments as well. We've uh, established ways that we can do testing referral for students and then refer faculty and staff to other testing uh, locally. So we are we are doing all of that. Um, and looking at some of the, you know, some of these things that we did that were h- absolute hygiene theater for COVID, maybe have some, you know, real public health relevant, uh, um, relevance when we talk about monkeypox and its ability to maybe uh, spread indirectly through other surfaces or fomites. So we're looking at that. Um, I do know there are six cases, at least at six individual cases at six different universities already and school hasn't started. So we know that that's definitely a possibility um you know i was trying to watch the case in cook county jail to see if that was kind of a pre-semester experiment about how this might spread in close congregate settings and things like that and so um that is on our radar and we're having those conversations and, and, and just getting everybody prepared um for that potential as well and even speaking to our housed uh, student organizations or greek houses in those areas on monday night about this as well so we've reached out to various student groups um so we're, we're kind of preparing and kind of tuned in and and just um, here to respond and learn more as well as we uh, all learn more about this
1: outbreak.
3: Are there any any preliminary plans to vaccinate on universities? I know like meningitis is one that isn't necessarily general population, but if you're on a university you're expected to have at least the first shot. Is that gonna be similar with monkeypox? Maybe over time. I think
4: right now, obviously we really need to focus the limited resources on the highest risk groups. Um, We are talking with Marion County Health Department as well about the potential of maybe having a pop-up clinic at IUPUI in the near future. Um, But at last check, and that was some time ago, I think it was July 22nd or 25th, Indiana had 3,600 doses of Genios, which is, you know, or 3,300, which is only enough to vaccinate about 1,600 people. Uh, Obviously, we have 7 million here. So I think that could come up more if and when we start seeing cases or clusters within higher ed institutes. And I think that that's something to consider. The few deaths that we have had outside of the uh, non-endemic areas, some of those, I mean, it has been in younger males. Um, Some of them have been immunocompromised, but some are otherwise healthy, and they they died from a complication of encephalitis. And with monkeypox, uh, generally younger children, those under eight, uh, pregnant women, the immunocompromised are all at higher risk as well. And so I think um, that's something that certainly we should consider and uh, promote.
3: Well, and it's interesting you mentioned the encephalitis because something that I had to stress very heavily to my physicians once I did have an actual care team. I had my uh, infectious disease specialist and my primary care, uh, and a nurse practitioner kind of checked in on me at home as I went through the recovery process. But uh, one of the symptoms I had that was unlike anything I've ever had with any other illness was this sense of dyskinesia or uh, like having restless leg syndrome, but in all of my body and it it lasted for days Um, and it was actually worse in my right arm and shoulder but it was like this pervasive restlessness that just I nothing treated it I mean I tried a plethora of of supportive drugs to try to get comfortable and I just had to wait it out Um, and that's a neurological symptom and uh, I, I stress that to my physicians I'm like my concern isn't necessarily with the immunocompromised but with somebody with like uh, prolonged QT syndrome or other underlying neurological problems, where this could kill them or cause very serious life-threatening complications.
1: We have a yeah. phone. We we have a phone call. Let me let me go to the phones first, uh, Tom Thomas, yeah. uh, if you don't mind. So uh, Rose has been waiting, and she has a question for us. Rose.
5: Yeah. Hi. I'm an old person, so that's why I'm asking this question, and I have no idea if there's any biological or medical connection but those of us who were vaccinated you know years ago mostly as children for smallpox is there any evidence that there's any immunity or any you know I don't know if there's any connection between this and uh, you know some of these pox diseases are related like cowpox and smallpox but is there any evidence that people who were vaccinated for smallpox might have an immunity to monkeypox
2: I could actually answer that. Uh, So that's a great question because monkeypox is a close cousin of smallpox, which was eradicated officially in 1980 globally. Um, And back in 2003, when we had a a small outbreak here in Indiana and several other states, we actually used smallpox vaccine uh, to uh limit the spread of the disease right to vaccinate uh, as graham indicated ring vaccinate those that were exposed uh potentially uh, because we knew it was effective against monkeypox um the question that came up in 2003 though is uh, i'm old enough to have been vaccinated for smallpox myself is that immunity still there right do, how long do those antibodies last in my system uh and that was not determined, essentially. Uh, There is some thought that, okay, yes, some of that antibody might still be available. Uh, Your body will remember that and start producing more antibodies to fight this infection. But we simply don't know for certain if those smallpox vaccines that you got in the 50s and 60s would be relevant to this particular uh, monkeypox uh, epidemic at this time.
5: Well, this raises a, a question about um, both the, um, which I thought was a, an excellent question, as someone who's almost the age of our caller and uh, remembering some of those those early um, vaccination pushes uh, for for smallpox. Um, but I, I'm curious to know what, and James, you probably I'm sure, sure can speak to this is what kind of treatments are out there for monkeypox for those cases, and is there any sense that getting starting treatment earlier tends to make the duration of the disease shorter?
3: I was offered um, an antiviral specific to I think smallpox that's available to the CDC. Um, I, I actually, by the time that, I, like I said, I was pretty progressed into the illness when I uh, was confirmed, and uh, that process to get the drug would have taken another two to three days, so i opted not to take it um and because i was doing well enough at that point i was feeling better not worse so i just let my body um take care of the illness there, there are supportive drugs uh something i i would like to stress to to any providers that may be listening is that this isn't just painful in the lesions it causes a lot of pain in the musculoskeletal system uh, like the flu but worse and um, when your patients are telling you that they're, they're suffering, I don't think it's uh, unreasonable to offer some type of supportive care with narcotic analgesics or benzodiazepines or other things. Um, my doctors did treat the symptoms for, like, for a very short period of time um, so that I could get some rest. Uh, but otherwise, it was just stay hydrated, you know, extra vitamin C, zinc, you know, common sense, you know, make sure I'm eating well. Um, and uh, so far, so good. Uh, like I said, the only thing I'm dealing with now is the, the lesions themselves uh, seem to take a considerable amount of time to heal. And you have to make sure that they don't get secondary infections. So I'm also on Bactrim uh, to prevent um, secondary infection in my skin. And then uh, uh, I've actually been taking extra B vitamin complex so that my skin heals faster.
5: And, and uh, are y- uh, Go ahead.
4: I was just going to say, I think it's another excellent point just I think we need to stress, James, is just the sheer duration of this illness and while it might be self-limiting for a lot of people and that they're not going to the hospital, it's excruciating pain and sometimes the the worst pain they've experienced in their life and you know we can't compare this, we can't say it's mild, we can't compare this to a flu, the flu doesn't last four weeks and doesn't have these potential for these kind of rare complications and um, I think something that the public really needs to be aware of again is that you are infectious during that entire time until those lesions fully heal, fall off, and you have new skin that develops. And that could be 30 days or more. And you know we're having challenges in the United States for people to isolate for five days for COVID when we know they're probably infectious for 10. Um, how is this gonna work? I mean, so many Americans are, are pay- paycheck to paycheck you know, I'm already thinking about, you say you get a household transmission and you have to stay at home for several weeks with your child, and then maybe your other child two weeks later gets it, then you get it two weeks after that. I can see this being just incredibly disruptive and debilitating on top of all of the medical um, uh, harm that can, and physical harm it can cause. and so. That's why a lot of the care is supportive right now. There is um, tecoviramat it's also known as Tpox. and I think that's probably, James, what you were offered, is it's um, the CDC has kind of streamlined its access for an investigational new drug, and it, it seems to be um, pretty effective in, in reducing those symptoms, and as we said earlier, if you can vaccinate contacts quickly, it might lessen their course of the disease, but that requires access to vaccine and really good public health. Uh, systems in
5: place. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Certainly, we all want to know what we can do to prevent um, uh, getting monkeypox. And because it is spread through close contact and you know the extent that people are able to uh, to share and know that they have it. Uh, in theory, you could avoid close contact, skin to skin contact with those people, or, or or sharing things very very closely. As as Bob said, bed clothes and so forth. That's very difficult when you have small children, of course. So, uh, but but is that basically the, in terms of pres- other than a vaccine, which is in short supply, uh, is that the general recommendation now is, is simply to avoid contact.
4: Yeah, I'd say you know avoiding contact with not only the individuals, but any of the materials, as we said earlier. Um, you know, we even want to avoid contact with animals. As we said earlier, the, the outbreak yeah. in 2003 United States was pretty much animal to human only. And I think that's something that really scares a lot of us in public health is, again, this is a virus that is now in 81 new countries on new continents. And this current outbreak, I, I guarantee you, will take years to control. But not only that, this a lot of these orthopox viruses, smallpox was the exception. It, it, it's pretty much a human-only pathogen, and that's why we were able to eradicate it. But a lot of these other orthopox uh, viruses are, are, are very capable at spilling over into different animal populations. And so I think that's what we really fear now is that if if and when that occurs in these new areas, then this disease will become endemic here and there, and it all will always be at risk of spilling back over into the human population. Uh, and I think that's again why this is such a, a massive public health failure already uh, in the first couple months here.
3: And what? when I go ahead, I was contacted by the Indiana State Department of Health and Animal Health because I'm a rabbit. I, I breed rabbits, and. Um, it was kind of a chore to get all of my animals and the only one that has maintained contact with me is my cat and uh, so um, and God love him I mean animals know when we don't feel good so he's been extra cuddly for about a month but uh, uh, all the other animals I've had to just kind of uh, rely on friends and my partner to, uh, to take care of them because I don't want to infect them with monkeypox either.
1: I've got a couple of follow-up questions. I, I think I want to start with just asking um, for policy recommendations from uh, you know Dr. Duszynski and, and from Graham McKean, what policy recommendations should you know, the state of Indiana and the Department of Health be looking at?
2: That's a tall order. Um, <laughs> you know, in terms of policy, obviously, I think we need to strengthen the infrastructure first Uh, so then we can develop policy around what works and what doesn't, right? Uh, We saw this with HIV, we've seen this with, now with COVID uh, and kind of the changing policies based on science and stuff. So we still have a lot to learn here from monkeypox. um, And I think we're going to have to assess the situation. And, you know, as Graham brought up, uh, if this does become an endemic disease where we see, you know, cases every year, uh then certainly policies are going to have to be adapted to you know schools and um places of employment and such to to accommodate uh the cases until we can uh, figure out a way to to at least minimize transmission in the community
4: graham oh i was just going to say yeah i think expanding the public health staff the infrastructure because again a lot of it's going to be tracing and isolation and contact tracing, obviously expanding testing and, and vaccinations and treatments. But really, I think we really need a public education and awareness campaign because as we've already said, it's already kind of been stigmatized or pigeonholed as you know a gay disease and that's not the case. Um, we need to require the reporting of the diseases. We need better data and reporting uh, as well, uh, certainly. And then I think we really need to look at and have a real conversation at the federal level, probably uh, in terms of providing people with paid sick leave. Uh, again, if I have to stay home for 30 days or I'm not able to teach or not able to go to work, um, that has some real detrimental effects, not only, again, physically or mentally or, or uh, medically, but also there's, there could be huge societal impacts with that. And we're seeing that with COVID. We have 4 million Americans that are not in the workforce because of long COVID right now, already just, you know, Three years almost since this disease was first found. So, those are, I think are, are larger societal and social policies we need to look at too. That we just one of the biggest things about President Biden' uh, COVID diagnosis recently is I wish we would normalize taking a day a sick day or taking a day off of work, and yet we see these pictures of him unmasked for one inside his Oval Office, but continue to work while you're sick. We need to normalize sick days. We need to normalize rest and recovery. And that's so much more uh, exasperated when we talk about a disease that has a course that is as long as as this one.
5: Yeah, yeah, indeed, indeed. Um, I'm curious to know, Thomas. You can maybe speak to this. We've, you know, again, obviously, experience, ex- continued to experience COVID, and now monkeypox, and who knows. Um, How are you seeing this uh, on top of all the uh, other issues we've been talking about with our public health infrastructure? Having these two outbreaks, are you seeing um, an issue of of healthcare workers having to now spread themselves even thinner?
2: Yeah, that was definitely an issue uh, when COVID began and we saw the huge surges of cases you know, we, we think about the hospital cases and the doctors and nurses and the respiratory therapists all playing such a critical role for those individual patients. But we also saw the same problem with the public health workforce. Uh, so many of my friends and colleagues have walked away from public health simply because they were harassed, uh, some being threatened uh, with violence because of the uh, things we were trying to implement in the community to protect people. Uh, and that that has taken a toll on uh, not only the the public health workforce, but on on the people wanting to go into public health, right? So this has been a real challenge for us. Uh, you know, we need to increase our capacity, as Graham has indicated, and others have as well. Uh, and it's hard to do that when uh, the pay is low uh, and you're being harassed. Uh, so these these challenges, um, you know, it you you compile them with covid and now monkeypox uh people are still working every day to fight this uh to improve their community's health and it's 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 taken a toll on us unfortunately
5: yeah yeah it's very very distressing to see i point i, I just toss out for general um uh general information specific to uh, vaccinations and and vac- vaccine mandates is one, one public health response is that there was a very recent uh, article uh, published by the National Bureau of Economic Research and picked up by things like the Chronicle of Higher Education specifically uh, pointing out that the vaccine mandates that were in place on college campuses across the country, they estimate saved nearly eight thousand lives, uh, and those were not only people who might have gotten infected on campus, but it it, it had this uh, beneficial effect on the surrounding communities. I, I, that, I just bring that up as an example of public health responses that are are you know they would like to have saved a lot more lives, obviously, but they but they did work. Uh, and, again, to associate those with uh, with positive outcomes and get that word out, uh, I think, is another another piece of the messaging that needs to happen. These kinds of recommended steps that uh, organizations can take really do – I mean, they save lives. It's not it, – it's on top of everything, all the other disruption if you're just sick, but they save lives.
1: I think to follow up on that, I'd really like to hear from all three of you, our panelists, and, and you've already – Address this a little bit, but about um, how politics can get in the way of actually um, addressing public health issues. We saw it with COVID. Are you worried about that happening with monkeypox? And let's start with uh, with Graham.
4: Yes, <laughs> <That short laughs> that is answer. Me <laughs> yes, I am, and I feel like we're already we're already seeing some of that. Um, And, you know, unfortunately I read the comments and the comments aren't good. Uh, But yeah, I think we're already seeing that. And we just just kind of had this laissez-faire, like nonchalant approach to this ongoing pandemic that is still killing 475 Americans a day. And it just kind of rolled into like a wait and see approach with the next one with monkeypox, you know, I think. This is only gonna to continue to happen, as we said earlier, it's only gonna happen more frequently as we destroy the planet, we, we decrease biodiversity and on top of all of the challenges of climate change and infectious diseases are gonna be a major one of this. And I feel like we've kind of entered a pandemic scene era on this earth. And when you add the politics into that element, it's not good. It, 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 it detracts from the greater good. And again, we are just so drunk on individualism in the United States that you know, individual risk tolerance and individual responsibility do not equate to good public health outcomes. It is not its antithesis to public health. And you know, the sooner we can care for each other and be empathetic and understand how to protect each other and the most vulnerable, only then can we. Proceed with you know good public health programs and practices. A lot of it, you know, is individual behaviors too.
1: Thomas?
2: Yeah, I'll echo what Graham said. It's absolutely so. The, the politics behind public health sometimes can definitely be uh, a challenge for us to to you know improve the health of a community. Um, and we saw that with COVID. We we're seeing it with monkeypox. Uh, we see it with influenza every year, right? Uh, it's it, and even you know to your earlier comment about vaccine mandates, we see it in that because we allow for uh, things like philosophical objections uh, or religious objections uh, in getting vaccinated, right? Um, whereas you know in a measles outbreak, I think in California a few years ago, uh, which allowed for philosophical and religious objections to vaccines, uh, even beyond medical contraindications. Uh, they removed those, right? Which then said, okay, um, you, you have to get vaccinated, right? And this is, you know, I think to Graham's point, this idea of shared responsibility, we have to care for each other. It's, you know, the vaccine may not only save my life, but it may prevent me from becoming ill and infecting someone else who is at higher risk of developing disease. So this idea of shared responsibility, I think is, is an important social justice construct in public health.
1: James, I'm really interested in your perspective as both a, a patient and with your theology background.
3: Uh, um, thank you. And I'll—I I guess my response i uh, will will speak to like the mythos of being human, and that's—you know—we let's go way back and think about you know the advent of civilization, or you know when we became a civilized creature that could have politics. And, you know, so many people will think anthropologically and think, you know, is it when we made hand tools or was when it was it when we developed speech or, you know, trying to think about these milestones and um, really the one that um, I think makes the most sense is that we have um, evidence that um, very early in our human evolution, uh, civilization started not with tools or not with language, but when we started to find human remains that had signs of like broken femurs, something that's a life ending problem, but there was evidence that they had healed. And so in that point in human evolution, we decided that it was worth taking the time to stop and tend to an individual member of the group who's been injured um, and and keep them alive and healthy because their value was important to the overall group. And I think that we've lost some of that humanness in our modern technological world.
1: All right,
4: thank you for that. Go ahead. I was just gonna say, I'd also add, You know, we're already seeing the impacts of the politics, and the misinformation, information, and vaccine hesitancy of COVID-19 spreading to other childhood immunizations. Uh, we are seeing this right now with polio polio in the united states we have somebody with paralysis in rockland county new york who is unvaccinated and you know with every one polio case you see there might likely be hundreds of others because so many people have asymptomatic infection and so you know we're seeing polio in the wastewater in uk for the first time and since 1984 we're seeing cases uh, case united states for the first time in over a decade and now we're seeing the wastewater of three new york counties including new york city Um, and so that's really putting the unvaccinated children at risk, and so we cannot let these systems that have been here for so long to degrade. Um, it really yeah. feels like we're going back towards some dark age of pestilence and disease at this point, and that should not be occurring in 2022.
5: No, certainly not, and I think you know. I'll just to be. Pollyanna a little bit here. I think sometimes I, I was am, am old enough to remember very much the polio vaccine and and getting it. I I when I grew up, I was one, a very good friend of the family. Um, my age was in an iron lung. She had missed getting the vaccine by you know six months when she was a little girl. Um, so that is very very real memory for an awful lot of people out there, and maybe. It, it, you know more people can experience the downside of these these diseases the more that does start to change some of the narrative around this but we have to take advantage of those opportunities and um, and we you know we don't want that to be the motivation but if that's what's handed to us we have to take advantage of it and, and help this next generation. Uh, think very seriously about what they should be doing going forward. That's
4: a good point. COVID is so invisible, whereas monkeypox is not, and smallpox was not it's a very visible disease. And I think there was a lot of push behind that to, to er- help eradicate it at that time. And I really hope that people take a different approach when they see um, some of these outcomes with monkeypox.
1: In the last two minutes, can uh, can you, Graham, and and you, uh, Dr. Duszynski, just Tell me, are we is uh, COVID here to stay? Are we just gonna have, is it gonna be like influenza? Or are we gonna have regular um, vaccinations every year? Yes. Yes, uh, another yes answer. <laughs> unfortunately, I
2: think we're moving into what we call the endemic phase of COVID, right? Where we're just gonna see cases every year. Um, and this is where we get the variants. So anytime somebody becomes infected, uh there's an opportunity for a new variant to emerge in the population and we're seeing that now so we've heard of ba5 variant which is highly infectious and kind of gets around uh, some of the immunity there is now variant ba 4.6 which is as infectious if not more than ba5 and able to get around the immunity as well Uh, the good news is the vaccines uh, are still working against that. You may become ill, but you may not get severely ill or hospitalized or die from an infection. Um, but I think it's going to be very much like influenza that we're going to need a booster every year um, that, uh, because of, the, uh, of this kind of transition to what we call the endemic phase of
4: disease. All right. We- I agree. We need updated vaccines that are specific to some of these subvariants that are better at blocking transmission. And if and when they come out, supposedly next month sometime. Everyone, please go
1: get them. All right, Graham. Thank you for that for that uh, succinct ending to the show. We are out of time. I want to thank Graham McKean from IU and Dr. Thomas Duzinski from I, from the Fairbanks School, IUPUI, and James Ferguson for joining us. He's good luck with your education, James, and thank you for sharing your story about being a monkeypox patient for producer Benta Boutier. Uh, and Kathy Knapp and Nathan Moore. We have three producers today for engineer Mike Pashkash and for my co-host Laurie McRobbie.
0: I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber Internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future healthcare in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey services for estate and downsizing clients. From initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com.